I hate Robinhood. No individual investor should be using Robinhood. Hate is a strong word. 50% of the people I talk to don't even know how much they earn. No way. Yes. You seem down on crypto. When you start to see cult dynamics in investing, that's a huge red flag. There are these certain pivotal moments when talking about money in a relationship makes a lot of sense. Ramit Sethi is an American writer, personal finance advisor, and self-made millionaire. He's the author of the 2009 New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, podcast host, and star of Netflix's How To Get Rich. Today, he joins us in studio to talk about his personal finance journey and how he was able to achieve self-made millionaire status. I don't want to age you, but you became a self-made millionaire at a relatively early age and your path to where you are now is quite fascinating, certainly unique. Walk us through that trajectory. How did you make that first million dollars? Uh, it's funny you mentioned making a million dollars because that's not even one of the most pivotal moments for me. I never woke up and said, I want to have a million dollars. My parents immigrated here from India. They taught me a lot about family, about money, mostly about education and working hard. After I graduated where I studied human psychology and human behavior, I was working on a tech company and on the side I was writing about money. And it became very interesting. Most of the advice that I had read about money was no, no, no. No, you can't buy lattes. No, you can't buy jeans. No, you can't go on vacation. Hoard your money until you're 95 years old and maybe you can spend your money then. It's not the life for me. And it wasn't the life for my friends. So eventually I started a blog after trying to teach my friends in college about money. And nobody really wanted to come to my free events. So started a blog, that started to take off. Wrote a book after many years of the blog and testing things. And eventually started a business around this where I help people live a rich life. And if we fast forward, here I am today. Now you're saying you didn't make this concerted effort to become a millionaire, no. but ultimately when you think about wealth creation, there is a mindset that's required and it seems as though it's one that started during your college year. So what is that foray into ultimately, because now you've made many millions, what does that foray into that look like? Well, I remember my parents during high school telling me, be good enough to get into a great college and the money will work itself out. It's kind of funny for a financial guy to say that because things do not work themselves out. You're supposed to plan, but they turn out to be right. And I learned that, for example, if you get into a very good college, they often will take care of the funding for you. And that's exactly what happened. My college offered me great financial aid and then I stacked on scholarships to pay my way through undergrad and grad school. Similarly, when it comes to making money, I always knew that if I was enjoying what I was doing, and I was creating value for other people, that the money would come. But I personally think that the money is an output. If I started off chasing the money alone, I probably could have gotten it, but that's not really the end goal. I think the end goal is a rich life and money happens to be a bright byproduct of doing hard work and it allows you to fuel what your rich life is. That's interesting. You say money is the output, which begs the question, what was your input? Well, my input was hard work yeah. um, and a lot of luck, I have to admit, because I was born to two parents who taught me about education and taught me about hard work. And I was born in America, which is very fortunate in and of itself. And then it's, of course, learning a skill that the world values. For example, I love to iron clothes. I love it. I could sit there and iron all day. I'd love to teach an ironing class. The problem is, not that many people value it. And so while I would love to teach an ironing course and charge $99, I'd probably get one buyer. I also love to eat spicy food. I don't know how many people are gonna pay me for that, but to learn how investments work, to learn about automation and money psychology, well, people want that and they're willing to pay. Based on your personal learnings um, and self-advocacy, you've written and more recently are featured in a Netflix show in which you're more or less offering people new tools to analyze their relationship with money. You talk at length about living a quote-unquote rich life. How do you define that? <laughs> well, a rich life can be traveling for three months a year. A rich life can be buying a beautiful cashmere coat 
Or rich life can be as simple as picking up your children from school every afternoon. So your rich life is yours. And the way you define it is going to be really different than the way I define it. That definition also changes over time. When I was in my early 20s, and in fact, living in New York, a rich life was as simple as being able to buy appetizers. Because when I was a kid, we couldn't afford appetizers. We would only eat out every month or two with a coupon. And how dare we even think about asking our parents to get... No way. It was impossible. To come to New York and to realize I can get an appetizer, or in fact, I can order three of them, and to know that I can take a taxi on a hot August day instead of having to take the subway occasionally, that felt incredibly rich. So that was in my 20s. Now, a little older, have a business under my belt for 20 years, my rich life has grown. And that's exactly what I want for other people. What is your rich life today? To be able to work with people I like and respect, amazing. To be able to travel frequently with my wife and with my family. And to be able to share my message of a rich life as broadly as possible. It seems like freedom is at the core of having a rich life, or at least in the way that you define it. When I ask people, what is your rich life? The number one answer I get, over 85% of people, they say, I want to do what I want, when I want. They kind of pause as if I'm going to clap. Oh, that's so cool, so original. Everybody says that. And so then I go, well, what do you want? And most of them just sit back. They've never actually thought about it. A common second response is freedom. I don't love that answer because it's just a word. What does freedom mean to you? To me, it was appetizers. Now, to most people, they go, I don't care about appetizers, but it has an emotional resonance with me because of my childhood. Freedom could be going in the grocery store and never looking at the price. What's the difference? 20 bucks, 30 bucks? But if you remember going shopping with mom or dad when you were a kid and they were agonizing over the price of Campbell's soup, that might be relevant to you. So I don't love surface level words. When people say, I want to travel, I say, where, when, how long do you want to go? What seat do you want to sit on on the airplane? That's the level of specificity I want us to use to create a vivid vision of a rich life. Does a rich life, does that predicate you know, invest in, budget in, all those things. So in other words, should one focus on a rich life or should they focus on money to then get a rich life? Which comes first? That's a great question. I believe that having a vision, a powerful, specific, vivid vision will help you get through the logistics of money. And this is one of the reasons that people struggle to get interested in money. The candid truth is most people are not that interested in money. They're interested in what money gets them. Sure. They're interested in stopping worrying about money. So how do I help people get interested in it? Well, the way is I first help them develop a very specific personal vision of a rich life that almost fits each person like a handmade glove. And then I'll ask them, okay, I want you to spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. And they go, wait a minute. Spend extravagantly? Are you saying I could spend more on the things I love? Concerts, organic food, my car, whatever. I go, yeah, let's find a way to do that. And they've never heard someone talk about money in that way. So once we go through this process, then when I say, look, let's talk about your automatic investments. Let's talk about your debt payoff date. You don't even know how much debt you owe. Let's talk about that. They're much more willing because there's a why. There's a reason behind it. You refer to that as conscious spending. Mm -hmm. You're a huge proponent of that. What if you're someone who is consciously spending very extravagantly? You like designer items and that's dominating your budget and the things that you want to ruthlessly pull back on don't make up a sizable portion <laughs> of said budget. Okay, this is a great question. First of all, I have nothing against designer items. Yeah. I like nice clothes. Sure. They're one of my money dials. I like nice hotels. Great. But we also have to be realistic with what our rich life is today and what our richer life can be tomorrow. So if somebody comes to me, um, in fact, I get this on my social media a lot. I'll say, you know, spend extravagantly on the things you love. What are your money dials? Those are the things you love so you can turn that dial up or down. And then I always get these half joking comments to go, what if I love everything? And you know what my answer is? You actually don't love everything. That's an intellectually lazy answer 
because nobody can equally love food, travel, health and wellness, convenience, luxury. You can't. I love luxury hotels. I go deep on it. I know the exact hotels, I know the exact rooms, I know the exact time of year I wanna stay because the view changes. That's freakish, okay? No, that's not normal, but that's what I love. If you love, well, what is the thing you love? Well, I love healthy eating, love whole foods, love going to Trader Joe's, organic food, do you know, wellness classes. Do you know the foods that you love at Trader Joe's versus Whole Foods? Yes. Do you know your favorite classes in the city to go to? Absolutely, solid core. B there you go. That's one of your money dials. I love that. Do you have equal knowledge of convenience or travel? <sighs> convenience, no. Okay. Travel, perhaps. Okay. Good, so maybe you have two or three money dials, great. Most people do not have the equal knowledge of all of them, you just can't. And so what I do is I try to get them to be honest. Hey, let's focus on one, and if you focus on one, you can actually spend more on it. And because we, we love optionality, especially young people, we don't wanna close one door, I go, it's okay to temporarily close it. Focus your money on investing, saving, and yes, the things you love, and then as your earning power increases, we can add more money dials or things you love into your conscious spending. What does a ruthless cut-in look like in practice? I certainly understand the extravagantly yeah. spending part. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's a lot more ruthless than people think. I work with couples on my podcast. They come on and they're extremely honest. They talk about every number, because I insist they share all their numbers, their income, their debt, they're spending, we look at it all. It's quite voyeuristic. And very often we'll discover they're spending more than they make every single month. Now, if you're watching this, you might go, well, duh, that's so dumb, how can they do that? The truth is most people do not know how much they spend. 50% of the people I talk to don't even know how much they earn. That is shocking. No way. Yes, just last episode, we, I have them write out their gross income, okay? Gross income, just how much they get paid. A lot of times people struggle. They go, I feel like we make money, but where does it all go? And I look at their income and sometimes I talk to people who make $40,000. Sometimes I talk to people who make $600,000. And we just look at the plain numbers. I go, did you know you made that much? 50% of people on the podcast go, no, I had no idea. Sometimes they're making $200,000 a year and they feel like they never have enough. And what this really teaches us is a key lesson. The way you feel about money is highly uncorrelated to how much you've got in the bank. People think that if I just had $10,000 more, if I just had $50,000, I would finally feel good about money. Wrong. Your feelings are highly uncorrelated. So when I look at their spending and I help them create a vision, then we talk about cutting their spending on the things they don't love. And inevitably they just pick around the edges. They go, oh, we could cut our uh, subscription to this TV thing. I go, that's like $8 a month. You know, you need to cut like $3,000 a month. I don't think we're gonna get there $8 at a time. And this really reveals another truth, which is most people overspend on two areas, just two, housing and cars. That's it. And couples will come and they'll be fighting about Target. They'll have fought about a $50 charge at Target for the last 15 years. And I look at their spending or vegetables. And I go, look, your fight is not about asparagus. It's the fact that you're spending 38% of gross income on your housing. You just can't afford it. And you know, again, people have never looked at their money in this way. Most people don't understand any basic ratios because it's quite technical. And so when they look at that, they realize, oh my gosh, it's not the price of vegetables, it's not Target, it's not somebody going out for fast food. It is our housing and our cars almost always. What if the housing is your area where you want to spend the most extravagant amounts of money. What if that's your number one money dial? Can you afford it? Sure, it might take up the bulk of your paycheck. If it takes up the bulk, you can't afford it. <laughs> there are ratios. So this is the okay, key. Okay, so what's the ratio? Perhaps that's the better question. Okay, in general, I'm gonna give you a general ratio, then I'm gonna give you the exceptions. Sure. In general, we want our total housing costs to be less than 28% of our gross income. If you own a house, which by the way, in America, for everybody listening out there, it's not always the best investment. I know your uncle told you. We're gonna talk about this, I promise. Housing is not always the best investment. Sometimes renting is a better option. In any case, when we talk about total housing, that means 
the sprinklers. That means electric. That means the roof repair. The roof isn't even broken yet, but the $25,000 roof repair that's gonna happen nine years from now, everything. HOA fees. All of it. Every, in fact, even the gas to go to Home Depot on Saturday, technically you should be adding that in as well as your labor costs. But again, nobody does that. So 28%, that is a nice rule. Unfortunately, housing has gotten extremely expensive. So particularly if you're in a high cost of living city, that is effectively impossible to hit. So I say, okay, okay, let's stretch it a little bit. It could be 30, 32, even 34. But the higher you go on that percentage of gross income, the more risky it is. Risky why? Risky because if you lose your job, you have very little in savings. If you're paying 34, 36, 38% of gross income, I get, I start sweating, sometimes more than the couples. I go, why am I freaked out? You're chilling. You have no money to save, no money to invest, and no money to go out and enjoy life. This is why they come and they go, we can't even go out for a date night. I go, well, yeah, it's because you're spending 40% of gross income and it just never calculates because again, most people, they enter a system where everybody wants them to overspend. The realtor, the mortgage loan officer, their, the government, their mom and dad, everybody wants them to buy and very few people come and say something as simple as run the numbers before you make the biggest purchase of your life. We're gonna come back to the renting versus buy-in debate. Uh, a lot of questions for you on that. Is there a baseline salary or amount of money that one should have saved up before entertaining investing? No. 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 In fact, I'm glad you asked that because one of the ideas that many people have is that investing is for the wealthy. And it's actually quite the opposite. The way you become wealthy is by investing, even $50 a month. So I've talked to people who are making minimum wage. I talked to a very diverse group of people on my podcast, on the show, in my email newsletter, and we look at their numbers and we say, look, obviously you can't afford to put $500 a month away. Could you start with 25? And uh, you know, the answer for a lot of people, they go, no, it's impossible. And I go, well, let's look, let's actually get into it. And I show them what $25 or $50 could turn into, and it becomes quite a powerful vision. Even at $50, the, the behavioral key there is that you're going from zero to one. So making that first investment and setting it up to be automatic, it's incredible because as your earnings increase, you simply have to turn that dial from 50 to 100, 100 to 500, and on and on and on. So I know many people who have relatively low incomes started investing at the age of 22, 23, and they're doing exceptionally well 10 years later just because they automated their investments, they don't even look at it, and it's compounded over the last decade. When you were in college, how much were you invested? A lot. I was investing since I was 14. Yeah. So 14, my dad helped me open up a custodial Roth IRA. I thought investing meant picking stocks. L let me tell you a story about three stocks I picked, and it actually has a really weird lesson to it that I learned. So I picked three stocks back then, it's the late 90s, Everybody's into tech stocks. Everybody thinks they're a genius. I thought I was a genius. I go, yeah, I'm gonna pick these stocks. I was working at a pizza place. I was making $4.25 an hour, minimum wage. And I was taking my money from working as a soccer referee. I was making pretty good money, about 20 bucks per game. So I had a few thousand dollars to invest. What expenses did I have? I was looking at my mom and dad. We had dinner every night at home. So I wasn't like a party kid. I was sitting at home practicing my spelling bee books. I said, yeah, I'll take this money and invest it. So I picked three stocks. One, JDSU, uh, which is like a telecom, was a telecom company, now bankrupt. Excite at home, search engine, now bankrupt. And a little company called Amazon.com. <laughs> so that, I still have that stock, it's done really well. Uh, what's the lesson? Let me please be clear about this lesson. The lesson is not, oh, just pick the next Amazon. I got lucky. I should have never been picking stocks. What I should have instead done was to say, let me build a broad diversified portfolio. And once I have all that dialed in, if I wanna take 5% of my money and pick some random stocks for entertainment, great. I happen to luck out, but that is not the lesson to learn. And now my portfolio consists almost exclusively of broad-based index funds. And the return on investments? Really good. Okay. But that's pure luck. 
please, I'm not Mr. Amazon. You're the exception rather than the rule. Yes, and that the, please do not take the lesson away that everybody should invest in the next Amazon because I just got lucky. You can do a little bit of both, right? Yes, exactly. So have a broad diversified portfolio and then you go, you know what, I'm gonna have a little fun. Yeah. Fine, no problem at all. Have fun, maybe those will outperform, probably they will underperform, but that's fine. It doesn't matter, it's educational, it's fun. But remember, we wanna start off with a broad diversified fund and stick with that. Perfect segue then. Obviously, there are a number of kind of gamified trade-in platforms that have really democratized access to invest in. What are your thoughts on platforms like Robinhood, for instance? Hate them. Hate is a strong word. I hate Robinhood. No individual investor should be using Robinhood. You should not be gamified to trade. Yeah. And when you log in and they go, here's $5, here's $10, pick a random stock. That is exactly how you turn young people into traders versus investors. I don't want gamification. I want steady, boring investing. Look at this wall. I'm just staring at that wall. That's how boring investing should be. That's it. You think There's I... no rush. There's no thrill. Yeah, good. Good. <laughs> That's exactly what it should be. Look, you want a thrill? Get a dog. All right? You want entertainment? Uh, go to a baseball game. Right. This is not where people should be getting their entertainment from. And that's exactly what you see with things like the meme stock phenomenon, right. crypto investors. I would argue that many of the people, particularly the young people who got involved in those, will have lifetime subpar returns. Because once you invest in some meme stock or crypto and you see it, 1,200% return in one year, you become addicted to it. And now, when somebody like me comes along and says, hey guys, let's talk about a 7% annualized return over the last 100 years, they go, oh, fuddy-duddy, 7%, who needs that? I go, you're doomed. Because for the rest of your life, you're gonna be chasing that thrill of 1,200%, which by the way has now crashed, and you think that 7% is a joke. You think that it's unacceptable to get 7%. 7% is actually really good if you have enough capital. Yeah. And so, it's very difficult to reason with somebody who has been almost radicalized by a thousand percent returns and gamification is one important way that Wall Street has onboarded young people to now expect that. So yeah, I do hate Robinhood and nobody should be using Robinhood. You seem down on crypto. Well, I think that when you start to see cult dynamics in investing, that's a huge red flag. I studied cults in college. I came to recognize a lot of the hallmarks of it. In-group, out-group language, um, demonization of the out-group, um, uh, norms that become self-perpetuating, and I started to see that in crypto. In addition, I started to see the goalposts change. Oh, crypto is a currency. Oh wait, it's not a currency because nobody accepts it. It's a form of storage, value of storage. Oh wait, it goes up and down. And on and on and on, the goalposts getting changed. If you want, to take 5% of your money and invest it in whatever. Crypto, individual stocks, your friend's bar in Brooklyn, be my guest. But often when I talk to crypto investors and I ask them, what does your diversified portfolio look like? They go, diversified? That's, that's for old people, what are you talking about? I'm getting 1200% returns. That's a problem. Clearly you advocate for financial literacy, for personal ownership of how one allocates, uses their funds. You've also touched on the fact that it's not exactly the most fun topic, right? Uh, people love what they can do with money, but when they think about, okay, well, let me open a CD and a Roth IRA or whatever, yeah. uh, not, not the most enticing conversation. Why not outsource all of this? Why not outsource? It's a great question. Yeah. We outsource someone changing our oil in our car, and maybe we outsource our gardening. Why not outsource this and have some somebody looking over our finances. A financial advisor, that's what they're paid to do. Well, I don't have a problem with having a financial advisor. I don't think 90 plus percent of people need one. You can learn this. And I will say that managing money is fundamentally different than outsourcing your oil change. Think about raising kids. How'd you feel if you said, I don't really wanna raise these annoying kids, let me just outsource it. It's kind of not acceptable. Would you agree? Oh, we have nannies. That doesn't mean you're outsourcing everything. You might be getting a little help during the day, but it's not really acceptable to say, I don't wanna think about this. 
Managing money is much more like parenting than changing oil. It is fundamental to everything we do. It affects where we live, what we eat, to some extent who we are as people. And so I insist that people take control of their money. And what that means is you got to know a few basic numbers. I'm not asking you to understand an encyclopedia of terms. I believe, you know, I will teach you to be rich. The book is all about a system that allows you for your money to flow and you spend less than one hour per month on your finances. That's what I do. That's what you can do as well. But you do have to spend that hour. It's important. Now, if you need a little help, there are certain people who I think would be right to take advantage of a financial advisor and hire them. If you have a complex portfolio, maybe you have prior marriage, an inheritance. If you have a large portfolio, say seven figures or more, or if you have a very specific thing coming up like retirement, you're considering social security withdrawals, great, but never ever pay a percentage-based fee. We've all heard it. Financial advisor charges 1%. Uh-uh. No way. No. 1% means that over the course of your lifetime, 28% of your returns will go to fees. Let's say you have $100 in your pocket. Give me 28 of those dollars. Ridiculous. Especially when you can pay a financial advisor an hourly fee, even a premium hourly fee, 500 bucks an hour, fine, here, is cheaper than paying a percentage-based fee. Now, the financial advising industry doesn't like this because that's where they make their profits. And they've actually fought quite hard against things like the fiduciary standard, as well as all of Wall Street. And their argument was actually, they actually wrote this, if we're forced to have a fiduciary standard, meaning putting our clients first, we won't be able to serve as many people. That was literally their argument. I have no problem with financial advisors. I've even hired one myself to give me a second set of eyes on my asset allocation. But I would never pay a percentage-based fee. I would pay a project fee or a hefty hourly fee happily. Yeah. Let's go back to the home ownership conversation. It still remains a primary driver of household wealth. Obviously, we're in a city like New York where most people are renting. Mm -hmm. When does it make sense to buy versus rent? Great question. It's not always. It's not always. I rented for 11 years living in New York. I made more money renting than I would have owning. What do you mean by that? Okay. First of all, I kept a very close eye on real estate prices. Uh, my rent went down four times in 11 years and I negotiated hard. I negotiated every year. Unfortunately, I didn't always get what I wanted, but I, my rent went down four times in 11 years. So here's how I made more money renting than owning. There was a building right next door and I looked because there were units that were the same size as I lived in where I was renting, same number of bathrooms, same view, okay? And to own that place instead of renting would have cost 2.2 times more. So if I was spending $3,000 a month on my rent, let's just say, it would have been over $6,000 when you factor in all phantom costs, including taxes, interest, maintenance, and on and on and on. Now, you know what I did? Instead of paying $6,000 to own, I took the $3,000 that I was saving and I invested it. And that money grew to way more than owning that would have ever done. So this is very controversial. I don't know why, because all I'm telling people, I'm not saying rent forever, I'm saying run the numbers on the biggest purchase of your life. The fact that people find that controversial shows you how far the pendulum has swung towards this idea of you must buy. In America, real estate is religion. And what the unstated truth that many people believe is that if you rent, you're a loser. That's why I love talking about this because I'm the I will teach you to be rich guy. I could go buy a place today. So why do I choose to rent? Gosh, I wonder if there's something to it. Here's how you know if you should buy versus rent. First of all, do you have 20% down? It doesn't mean you have to put 20% down, but it's important that you have shown yourself that you can actually put money aside because home ownership comes with many phantom costs, okay? And you have to prove to yourself versus any bank that you yourself can actually save. It's important. Second, have you calculated whether buying or renting is a better decision? The surprising truth is that in many high cost of living cities, it's actually a better financial option to buy. 
I've lived in San Francisco, LA, New York. In each of those cities, I carefully analyzed the numbers. It was a better decision to rent than to buy. Have you calculated whether total housing costs are 28% or less? Sure, we can stretch it a little bit depending on factors, but in that ballpark. Okay. Are you okay if the price of your house goes down? That's number four. And finally, do you want to buy? Sometimes I talk to young people and they just tell me, oh, I have to buy, I have to buy, I have to get on the property ladder. If I don't buy, I'm gonna get priced out. They start to get increasingly frantic. I go, do you wanna buy? They go, well, everybody told me I got to. I, why? I just ask them why a couple of times. And it becomes quite apparent that their heads have been filled with a lot of pro real estate propaganda and that I want them to simply slow down and think critically. If you're young, and you plan to move lots of places, buying might not be the right decision because it takes about 10 years to properly amortize those transaction costs, etc. Start actually paying more towards principal. If you are just not interested in maintenance, like I don't have a screwdriver, I don't want to. Cool, text the landlord, fixed within the day. So I want people to understand both sides of this important issue and then make the decision that's right for them. So what was the turning point for you? Because you ultimately did buy property. No, I didn't. Oh, I thought you said you bought property here in no, New York. You're no. still renting. I still rent and I love yeah. it. My wife and I have talked about it extensively and we love the flexibility. We love having zero maintenance. And from a financial perspective, it's a better decision for us to be renting. Now, one day I'm sure that we will buy. And I've already put money aside for that. So if you are renting, here's the key. If you choose to rent and you carefully run your numbers, make sure you invest the difference. So again, it would have cost about 6,200, 6,400 for me to buy. I took that money and I invested the difference. If you do not do that and you just rent and then don't save anything, you're in big trouble. <laughs> okay. So you have to set up automatic investing, which is why I'm such a huge proponent. I spend multiple chapters in my book talking about how to automate this thing so you never have to think about it again. Do you invest in any retail, let's say vacation property in Florida, you don't want to live there, you'll rent it out and use that to let's say pay your rent here in New York City. I don't even want to fix my toaster or anything. Why would I have vacation property yeah. in another state that yeah. I have to fix some guy who well, plugged the toilet? Well, a lot of New Yorkers do, do that. Well, do we really want to take what most people do for good financial advice? Hey, we're, we're talking to the audience here. I mean, people go, well, most Americans own a house. Yeah. I go, okay, are most Americans the model of financial success that we want to emulate? We want to think critically. Just because a bunch of people bought a house in 1970, and through big appreciation, primarily driven through NIMBYism, they don't allow anybody else to buy, build more property around them. Properties have become protected and therefore there's false scarcity. That's why the value's gone up. That's changing. A lot more housing is being built, which I'm a huge supporter of. Do we simply want to emulate what happened 50 years ago in a totally different interest rate environment and price environment? No, again, it's not controversial to say, Let's step back. Buying may be the right decision. Again, I will buy someday, but let's make sure we run the numbers and think carefully before we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on the biggest purchase of our lives. Hearing this as an outsider, it seems that one would have to have a bit of privilege to be able to really take the time to sit down and compare the rent to the place next door to churn these numbers. I mean, is there a bit of privilege that comes with the flexibility to be able to do this? It seems like it requires some really on the ground work. That's a great question. I think there's a lot of privilege in being able to talk about who buys property, who rents. Many people do not know all the striking racial differences the concept of redlining is something I talk a lot about because money is political. Housing is political. And I'll often get a comment on social media, stick to finance. I go, are you aware that money is political? Like it's the most political thing there is. The reason your housing is so expensive is because of politics. But in terms of my expectation that you run the numbers before spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, no. I have zero problem having that expectation and in fact insisting on it because you can go online and search for a buy versus rent calculator right now. Take you two seconds. You can plug in the numbers. 
That will take five minutes and you can get 80% of the right answer right there. Now, when it comes to buying a house, I expect people to understand the intricacies. I don't expect you to understand how your car works. You're just driving it. It's fine. But you're making the biggest purchase of your life. Yes, you need to understand what an amortization table looks like. And you need to understand that in the first 10 years, you are paying mostly interest. It's shocking to people because we have these handy phrases in America. Again, we have these almost religious phrases. You're throwing money away on rent. It's weird. They never said you're throwing money away when you eat out at a restaurant. Oh, you're paying your landlord's mortgage. Oh, that's so interesting. Do you say the same thing about the sushi restaurant owner whose mortgage you're paying when you eat there? If you understood an amortization table, you would look at it and realize that in the first 10 years, primarily, you are paying interest. So if anything, you're throwing money away on interest. Now, if people are watching this and they go, what the hell is this guy talking about? That's why I'm here. Because all I want is for you to become very good at understanding these concepts before you go to buy a house. So no, I actually don't agree that it, it requires privilege to be able to run a buy versus rent calculator. That is exactly what you should do for the biggest purchase of your life. You said that there are two things uh, people spend the most money on. One is houses, the other are cars. Yeah. Talk to me about the latter. Well, I always ask people, what car did you buy? It tells me a lot. Okay, like for me, I have a very sensible four-door Honda. Very sensible. Any Indian kid is like, yeah, this guy, I, you know how I was raised. Car and auto costs come with massive phantom costs. And this is something we don't consider. Most people walk into an auto dealership and they simply pay based on the monthly payment. Wall Street knows this. They know how naive we are about monthly payments. So. The dealer will say, what do you want to pay? And somebody will say, um, 300 a month. They go, no problem. We can work that out for you. Wrong way to approach buying a car. A better approach is TCO, total cost of ownership. That means how much does a car cost? I need the full cost. Let me add insurance, parking, gas, maintenance, because you know things are going to break, registration, all of it. Just to give you an example, my car payment used to be $350 a month. But when I factored in all the costs, including gas, insurance, parking, parking tickets, living in San Francisco, and on and on and on, it was over $1,000 a month. So imagine you buy something thinking it's going to be $350 a month. And when you actually add everything up, it's over $1,000 a month. That's how people get into trouble. I want to discuss the current economic climate. We're still seeing high inflation. Paychecks obviously aren't going as far as they used to. Interest rates, for better or for worse, depending on what you're looking to do with your money, are climbing. How should one's investing strategy, or perhaps more broadly speaking, their approach to finances change during this inflationary period? On the investing side, not much change. Yeah. Investing, if you have the right setup, whether the market is good or bad, it doesn't change. Whether inflation is good or bad, it doesn't change. I didn't change anything yeah. for my investing. Why? Because I have an asset allocation or a pie chart of how my investments should look, knowing that I'm in my early 40s, and I have it automatically set. That's the way to do it. That's how real investing is done. You're not sitting there looking at PE ratios and reading what's on the new. No, do not do that for your investing strategy. You pick one. I picked mine 20 years ago. And I've been doing it ever since. And I log in every few months. I go, oh, cool. Close. That's it. It's not entertainment. I watch TV for that. I watch How to Get Rich on Netflix. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> okay, now as for spending, I will say, certainly things have gotten more expensive. Housing has gotten crazy expensive. So there are certain adjustments that we have to look at. Oftentimes, again, our feelings are highly uncorrelated with what's actually going on. And you can see that right now. Many people feel that things are horrible, but in some cases, it's actually quite good depending on what we're looking at. Inflation is actually down. Weird though. We don't see that in the media that often, do we? We only see when gas prices are up. I went on social media and I went back. All the people who wrote me and said, 
oh my God, gas prices are so crazy. When they were very expensive, not one of them had posted about how gas prices went down. Again, our feelings are driven by headlines we see, less so actual numbers. And I cannot emphasize this enough. It's the same thing we see in politics. You ask people what's going on, they'll often say things are terrible. But if you look at the actual numbers, in many cases, things are quite good. So all I want people to do is just track their spending for one month and have an objective view into where your money's going. Is there anything you consider to be an objective waste of money? Or is it all subjective based on priorities, based on the money dial, based on whether it falls into the 20 to 25% of spend you have for fun things? I mean, if you buy Crocs, you have bad taste. <laughs> so that's a bad spend. Um, no, I don't care. Yeah. You, honestly, if people tell me I wanna buy $100 pickles, God bless. If that's what you love, please. You wanna buy a crazy amount of books or you wanna go out to bars six nights a week. Fine, as long as all your other numbers are in order, it's your rich life, it's not mine. You're a big fan of expensive weddings, which I find surprising. Maybe you'd rephrase it another way. You saved up a ton for your wedding, fine. Uh, but at what opportunity cost? Or is that part of your 20 to 25%? <laughs> at what opportunity? Come on. Oh, if I took that money and I invested it, then 90 years exactly. from now. So why do I buy a sandwich? <laughs> I saw this article. It was an actual article. It said the $25,000 sandwich. That sandwich you bought for $10, if properly invested for the next 90 million years, would be 20,000. The avocado toast. Millennials could buy houses at this point. So ridiculous. And honestly, so intellectually lazy. The idea that everything should be looked at as an opportunity cost, way to squeeze the joy out of any rich life. No wonder people hate money and they hate talking about it because every time they turn on a show, every time they pick up a magazine or a book or look at TikTok or wherever, they see somebody going like this, here's all the things you can't afford, you're bad. I go, no, let's talk about the joy of living a rich life. Even if you have debt, you can still live a rich life. Before I ever met my wife, I was in my 20s, I knew one day I'd be married, and I knew that I wanted to have an awesome wedding. A part of it is cultural, because Indian weddings are big and we wanna invite everybody. I love that. And part of it is that I have a personal philosophy for the important things in my life, I don't want cost to be the number one factor. So my philosophy is that for those things, I'm going to oversave. So how did I do it? I started in my 20s. I didn't know when I would meet my wife. I didn't know when I would get married, but I just said every month, I'm gonna automatically save. And I created a savings account named wedding and one for uh, honeymoon. And I just put money into it. Just automated it, made that decision once, never thought about it again. Well, when I met my wife and we started talking about getting engaged, that money was there. It was ready to be used. And I have to say, that was some of the best money I ever spent yeah. because those memories with our friends and family, some of whom are not with us anymore, are incredible. And every year for our anniversary, we watch our wedding video and we think about the people who were there with us. And to me, that is the real value of money. It's to live your rich life. And for us, that was our rich life. Since we're on the topic of marriage uh, or weddings, I should say, money is often cited as one of the primary reasons people get divorced, whether it's opposing attitudes on how to handle money, mismatched financial priorities. How does one ensure that they're lockstep with their partner prior to their nuptials? What conversation should be had? A lot. And yeah. I have to admit, I made a mistake on this. I violated my own rule. Yeah. I knew about my now wife's finances because she had come and she had asked me some question about her 401k. I was like, read this book. I will teach you to be rich. So we started talking about her finances. And then a while later, she told me that she didn't know anything about mine. Big no-no. That was a mistake of mine to not proactively talk about it. There are these certain pivotal moments when talking about money in a relationship makes a lot of sense. First of all, it's not on the first date. <laughs> Do you know how many financial experts are like, you should talk about money on your first date. I go, have you ever been on a first date? What, are you gonna pull out your asset allocation? Here, look at, oh, I'm a 90-10 investor. What about you? I go, you're never gonna proceed to date two. Don't do that. There are pivotal moments like the first time you travel 
together, you can talk about, hey, I'm so thankful that you invited me to go. Just out of curiosity, how are you thinking about the financial part of this? Are you, how are you thinking about the split for this? That's a good way to talk about it. Other genuinely curious questions. Hey, how were you raised? You know, when it comes to money, what do you remember your parents talking about? My parents always said blank, blank, blank. How about yours? Again, genuine curiosity. I'm not trying to get some questionnaire filled out, but I genuinely want to know with a partner. Obviously, when you're talking about getting serious, that may involve moving in or maybe not. Engagement, wedding, potentially discussing having kids. Lots of moments where it just makes sense. And I kind of love the idea of two people coming with their own history and experience with money and kind of fumbling around to find a vision that works together. I don't mind if it's a little clumsy. You know, getting in a relationship, you're bringing all kinds of different experiences and energy. It's clumsy, that's life. Money's exactly the same. Yeah. Going back to the topic around fun, where do you spend your fun funds? <laughs> I love talking about this. Well, I love a few things. My number one money dial is sure. convenience. Okay. So I spend a lot of money on convenience. That would be food. I have an amazing personal assistant. All of that, that makes my life easy. Next, I love travel. That's a big thing. So my wife and I, we travel a lot and we love it. We invite our family many times. I also love clothes. So when somebody comes and they're kind of embarrassed, like, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed I like this thing. I go, why? It's okay. If you can afford it and you love it, Fantastic. So those are some of the areas I spend. Well, what on. did you have to deprioritize as you're creating your various money dials? Thank you for asking. Uh, my car is 17 years old. I don't mind. I have no payments. It's a nice car. I guess, well, it was. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. I it think it's great. from point A to point B. Yeah. And I, you know, I hardly drive. So I go, why do I need some something new, it's just not important to me at this point in life. Yeah. I'm sure one day I'm gonna get a very nice car, but today I'm good. Um, housing, you know, should I go and buy a big mansion? Not really important to me. I like a nice cozy place. I like renting yeah. as does my wife. So those are some of the areas that I cut back. And how often are you rejiggering those priorities? Every year. Every year. Every year in December, we do what's called a rich life review. So my wife and I will sit down. I'll do it individually too, so will she, but we do it together. And then we'll, we'll take a look and we'll say, okay, what worked last year? What was awesome? And we write that down. What would we change? Ah, uh, I didn't really like this trip we took, or, you know, I feel like we're too tight on this. I'm always like constrained. And then we look at the numbers. Okay, we had a plan. This is where we thought we would be. Where are we? over, where are we under? And it's not judgmental. It's not like you're bad because you bought this and oh my God, I feel so bad. It's more like a scientist. Okay, we had a plan, let's, let's analyze the plan. We were having difficulty connecting about money and I was like, I'm the money guy. This should be easy. She suggested that we see a therapist and I was totally game because we, we needed help. We went to see a therapist. This therapist was really good, asked us, some great questions. One of them was, how do you see money? She asked me first. I said, growth, so easy. I could see the numbers floating in front of my eyes. I could see the compounding happening, rule of 72. And then she asked my wife and my wife said, safety. I was like, what, huh? Safety. And that really was the genesis of a discussion about how we see money. We see it totally differently. And then we started connecting more, but I think when it comes to a prenup, most people don't need it. Yeah. There are a few categories. If one person is coming with a, a pre-existing business or a pre-existing large amount of assets or wealth, that could be family inheritance, whatever it may be, then you should probably do it. But uh, it's, it's less the sort of richy rich idea that people have of prenups. One person in an evil top hat saying, sign this. That's not really how it works. In the show, you mentioned that karaoke bars are terrible. What's wrong with them? I said that? He said that. What did I say? <laughs> you were like, oh, karaoke bars. I don't want to do that. Like, you kind of just shrugged it off. Wait, I don't have anything Why against karaoke. I think I don't want to be on camera. Karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. That's a good call out. 
Like maybe maybe karaoke bars are money. No, no, pit. no. I have nothing against karaoke. Please. But you do have something against Crocs. I have something against Crocs. But listen, Karaoke Bar Association of America, I have nothing against you. Let's end with some rapid fire questions. Okay. An unpopular opinion you have regarding finances. I have no unpopular opinions. Where do you receive the most pushback when given financial advice? That renting can often be a better financial decision than buying. Biggest misconception about wealth creation. That you have to be rich to start investing. Life insurance, is it worth it? Term life insurance is good. Yeah. If you have dependents, great. Whole life insurance is a whole waste of money. Because? It's all, all the money's going to fees. Okay. And don't trust these TikTokers who are telling you about life insurance. Oh, I put my money in an IUL and then I borrow against it and it's infinity. No, that's all fees. If it's too complicated for you to understand, it's not right to invest in. One last thing, insurance is not investing. Insurance is insurance. Investing is totally separate. One thing you absolutely will not spend money on. Uh, medium salsa. Medium salsa. <laughs> I'm right there with you. If it's not burning my esophagus, I don't exactly. want it. Exactly. Worst money advice you've ever received? Uh, if you stay at the same company for the next 35, 40 years, you will retire with $1 million in your 401k. Is there potential for that? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice advice in the 1970s. Sure. But when I was getting that advice in my 20s, I knew I was not gonna stay at the same job. And also, I wasn't gonna settle for only $1 million in my 401k. I knew that I could earn more, compound more, start a business of my own. So I love that it works for him, but the time that we are living in, very few people are staying at the same company for 40 years. Really quickly before we wrap things up, you mentioned the fact that with money, when you, or when you envision money and all that it can do for you, you're focused on growth, your wife is focused on security, which I think is a really interesting distinction, especially for me, first generation Nigerian American. Have you ever viewed it through the security lens? Of course. Yeah. Of course. I want to make sure that I have enough so we never are at financial risk. Right. So for me, that means being conservative with my investments, right? I'm not putting 80% in crypto. It means having a little extra cash cushion. It means being extremely thoughtful before I commit to a fixed cost, like a house or a car. Those things I will spend a lot of time on. How much something costs at the grocery store, much less time on. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for me. Appreciate you coming here with your financial wisdom. I do have a Robinhood account, so I don't know what to do about that. But <laughs> I'll I don't, tell you I don't, what to do. I don't use it Open very your often. phone right now. We're going <laughs> to get rid of that thing.